You're listening to a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. Well, if we felt we needed to deepen democracy, you're in the right place because this afternoon we're talking about citizens, the Citizen Act. Um, so we need to support an emergency transition. So a strong democracy in empowered communities will be vital to enable citizens to shape a climate emergency. So we're looking at how we deepen our democratic engagement, your participation, and grow the power of communities to keep the transition accountable and just. So we've got a terrific lineup today and how we've had the most exemplary uh, journalists with us here today and we've got Tracy Hutchison who is the moderator and of course you know Tracy because she's an award-winning TV radio broadcaster, journalist, author, public speaker, facilitator and MC with over 30 years experience at the highest level in Australian and international radio and television and she's also made an incredible uh, contribution uh, to uh, social organisations and media. She's been involved in um, RRR um, and the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival and co-producer and na national chair of the inaugural Australian Women in Music Awards. She served as the board director of RRR, Music Victoria, uh, head of journalism at the Australian College of the Arts. She's got an incredible resume. Um, so I will hand you over because she probably wants me to stop talking about her and she'll introduce our panellists. So thank you. Thank you. Michelle, uh, I, I was kind of looking around for a moment. <laughs> um, thank you for all being part of this conversation and uh, indeed the last couple of days, those of you that have, have been with us uh, for the last couple of days. That last session um, was an excoriating performance from my former ABC colleague, Kerry O'Brien, and how we miss him in the national debate. And it did remind me of uh, they were in many days the glory days of the national broadcaster and I feel very fortunate that um, that was in fact the time that I was working at 7.30 and other parts of the ABC. Uh, so with a deep breath, uh, we, we uh, prepare for the, um, the penultimate session, uh, Citizen Act. And I guess after the last couple of days, I think that's very much what we're all wondering. Um, it has been a, a pretty landmark gathering, I, I think you'll agree. Uh, leading thinkers, activists, strategists, scientists and disruptors in the climate emergency landscape. Um, and it's, it's a fraught and contested space. I, I think that's the other thing that's sort of been coming out. You know, there's an incredible desire to get something done, to try and find a way forward as citizens and how we might pull ourselves back from the brink of hot house earth, that three degrees of warming that we know without any action is coming. So I do think though at the heart of our dismay and our despair and the disruptor actions is the failure of the body politic. We've just heard that discussion and that's why in many ways we're all here. Failure of the body politic to listen and to act beyond election cycles and beyond the captive control of vested interests. So, Citizens Act. Citizen Act, how do we turn that activist capital into political will? And are we on the brink of perhaps new models, new ways of representation? And is this our opportunity with a generation of climate strikers all eyeing off their first opportunity to vote? What does that look like? 
What are they looking at in terms of where they're going to put their political energies? We welcome your questions, so do consider some things you'd like to put to the panel. Um, we are going to run that, uh, uh, that uh, um, uh, set up where we'll take three questions and put to the panel and then another three questions because it enables us to get a diverse uh, range of, of perspectives so that the panel can also consider um, some of the perhaps the thematic things that are in some of those questions and it does work quite well in terms of rolling through some ideas and, and um, ensuring that as citizens we're all, uh, we all have a place in this panel. So to dissect and persuade and proffer perspective, uh, we have a great panel of esteemed thinkers with us. Uh, we have Tim Hollow, who is the Executive Director of the Green Institute, Peter Cock, Dr. Peter Cock, sociologist, environmentalist and activist, long time at the front line. Lee Eubank, who is the Climate Campaigner at uh, Friends of the Earth, or Act on Climate Campaigner at Friends of the Earth. And uh, Giselle Wilkinson, the um, co-founder, I should also take an opportunity to thank the Sustainable Living Foundation uh, for enabling this event. They have pulled this together in a remarkably breathtakingly short period of time and that in and of itself is a, is a triumph for democracy and citizen engagement. So, yes. So bravo to our first speaker. I'm delighted to welcome thought leader, author, and social innovator, and soon we hope, possessor of doctorate, Giselle Wilkinson. Thank you. Um, just on that failure of the body politic, you know, I actually think it's criminal failure, and I'm hoping to see if people go to jail over this situation we've been put in, which we didn't have to be here. We didn't have to be having this conversation. Even in the 1990s, this could have been avoided. And um, so there are people who are responsible. And although I'm not a them and us, them and us type person, usually, um, I think you know some responsibility has to be slated home to the right places at some time. Meanwhile, we have to solve the problem that we find ourselves in. And here we are at the end of our two-day summit, which we have kept at a very high level. Um, because the number of issues within it are just so many. Uh, but this is, must be just the beginning of a, a much deeper, truthful conversation that can continue from here on. And today, right now, we're going to talk about where we find ourselves, which is Citizens Act. Um, I'm just going to give some sort of headlines and hopefully it'll, enough will come out that we can discuss it in question time and so forth. The first one is that Safely politicising the electorate requires a democracy upgrade. So the, if we don't do it safely, we can end up with um, the politicising of our electorate that isn't democratic or safe and doesn't get us where we want to go. So I think safety is an issue, that uh, we do it with res huge respect. Huge respect and um, mindfulness and you know consensus decision making and all the processes that we've been learning and practicing in our organizations now for probably 20 years or more um, and that will help us you know stand in our integrity and guide us to a better world actually um, currently damage our, our system is currently damaged by corruption and and also neglect and I think some of the neglect is our own neglect eye off the ball not holding our um, politicians to account, 
not calling them bullies when they're doing bullying things, you know, just letting them, letting them get away with it. And the other reality of all that is that statist intervention um, is now almost an inevitability because we've left it so late. So I spoke to Professor Kevin Anderson in the UK about this and he says that uh, this can be done well. So I think there's a moment in time, and um, Adrian Whitehead referred to this the other day, yesterday. He's saying that um, we have probably only a few years to populate the vacuum with the, 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 the appropriate um, statist intervention, one that is respectful and that is democratic and transparent and accountable. And if we fail to do that, we, the movement, then um, some other political forces can step in and give us a different alternative, which might not be nearly as good or get us where we want to go. The other thing is that, um, you know, if we're wanting citizens to act, us ourselves and other citizens to act, what are we asking them to act for? And we need to find that overarching common ground that will that will relate to left and right ends of the political spectrum and everybody in between. So Philip Sutton talks about maximum protection. And he basically asks us all to think about what is it we want to protect? Who do we want to protect? And what do those people and those sentient beings and species, what do they need by way of protection? So if you think about the coral reefs or you think about black cockatoos or you know, um, any of the many species that are under threat right now, they need, they need not too much heat. They need access to water, to food, to a safe ecosystem. So then, the, then we have to unpack that. That is at the point at which we go, right, we need to restore safe climate conditions. This is something we need to agree on as a movement. It's all those things that we're currently doing a lot to do with stopping things, and that must happen. But we also need to know what we're putting in its place. So restoring safe climate conditions is a goal, a vision, that will enable us to protect, give maximum protection to the things we care about. Oh. <laughs> um, okay, so I won't go through the points of what you have to do to get to restoring safe climate, but there are some steps. We have to grow the movement. Um, so the movement that's focusing on safe climate restoration is quite small, the, particularly the people who are doing it in a full-time capacity. Most people are putting time in after hours and on weekends. You know, we're past that point now. We need people to give up a day a week, two days a week, three days a week for the planet. And we need to grow that. We need to build the next wave of activism and we need those the next wave to be educated and educating. They need to be able to fully understand, and I think that a lot of people say they understand, but perhaps don't fully understand. And the final point is the banquet of issues and ideas now needs a detailed, very detailed, optimistically framed and collaborative vision that we need to all create together. Thank you, Giselle. Um, Lee Eubank is the Act on Climate Coordinator at Friends of the Earth. Lee's works uh, at that grassroots end of campaigning, um, part of the Yes to Renewables, cut his teeth 
uh, wrestling the anti-wind farm lobby on King Island, now spearheading the case for a, for a state renewable energy target. He optimistically believes that protecting communities from climate impacts is something all political parties can support. Please welcome Lee. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Giselle. Um, uh, I, feel, I kind of feel like this sense of deja vu walking around here um, today and over the last few days um, because it was 10 years ago that we had the transition decade launched in the same building. Was anyone at that conference? A few hands up. I know the Senator Janet Rice was there. So yeah, I think what's really heartening is that we are seeing a huge groundswell of support for climate action. Um, and it's, yeah, it's incredible when you see lines out the door. Um, very heartening for those people who have been in the fight for a long time. Um, so um, I'm a community campaigner at Friends of the Earth. Um, I very much consider myself a citizen who is having a crack. I don't really consider myself a professional. So yeah, what I'm about to say is kind of informed from that um, grassroots um, you know, political practice and working with communities in the city and outside of the kind of the kale belt or the latte sipping realm. <laughs> Bit of a cheeky joke. So what I'm going to ask you to do now is just close your eyes. We're just going to do a little visioning exercise. So it's the year 2023. The Australian government has declared a climate emergency. The government is developing a 10-year transition plan for the whole economy to reach zero emissions. A national rollout of Victoria's solar home scheme has cut power bills for householders and delivered the largest drop of emissions in the country's history. Hands up if you think it's a good idea, good outcome, sorry. Now, yep, and then open your eyes. Keep your hands up, open your eyes. Look around. Pretty cool. Close your eyes again. It's the year 2023. The Australian government has declared a state of climate emergency. To decarbonise the energy sector, it has suspended planning processes and will build a nuclear power plant for each capital city. The Prime Minister has increased funding to Border Force to defend the country from an increase in refugees. Military, military engineers have been deployed to build more dams and seawalls to protect valuable assets. Hands up if you think that's a good outcome. Open your eyes and look around. <laughs> so, yeah, the point of that exercise is just to underscore that the climate emergency concept, it is a new concept, it's still in its infancy, and it's still to be defined. And I think, you know, we all have work to do to ensure that the concept is filled with the values of justice and fairness and democracy. And we have work to do to ensure that it isn't um, kind of co-opted by, by opportunists and people peddling false solutions and you know, those authoritarian anti-democratic values. And the reason why I say this is that you know, this emergence of the climate emergency concept, it isn't occurring in a vacuum. Um, it's occurring in a political context. So if you, if you look um, to Australia, we've seen our democracy downgraded from open to narrowed. Um, we've seen the rise of right-wing populism in the United States, Europe and elsewhere, and also kind of strong men politicians like Trump. 
And we're also seeing this emergence of a post-truth information age. Um, Dave Roberts, a, a really renowned um, you know, climate change thinker, someone who's been engaged in the issue for decades, um, in a recent podcast with Ezra Klein, warned that, um, you know, that what concerns him is that the Republicans and the Trumps of the world will switch from climate denial straight over to like a type of eco-fascism. Um, because after all, it is a good rationale when you want to build walls. Um, and in France, a spokesperson for Marine Le Pen's national uh, hard right party explained, borders are the environment's greatest ally. It is through them that we will save the planet. And closer to home, we're also seeing some of this kind of uh, concern bubbling up. So I'll just read out a little bit of a passage here. Forget China and America having too much influence over us. It will be the Australians fleeing climate change who will be the real problem, writes Martin Bradbury of the New Zealand publication, <laughs> The Daily Blog. Fortress Aotearoa will become a pressing demand from locals trying to protect the last lifeboat from becoming an Australian territory. The current political spectrum does not have the capacity to force through the radical adaptation we will require to survive the next phase of the climate crisis. Cool. Wrap up? Yep, cool. Um, so, you know, in Australia, we've seen the likes of Jeff Sparrow similarly raise this concern. And it is up to all of us in the room today and everyone at the summit over the last two days to make sure that we are championing freedom, fairness, and a just response. Um, the Green New Deal is an emergent concept that gives me a lot of hope on this. I think when we bring together the struggle um, against inequality and unemployment with the struggle um, to tackle the climate crisis, when we're bringing um, you know, dis disparate groups together to solve the problem, um, it is a platform for cooperation and a deepening of democracy. And Hopefully in the question time I can go through a couple of tactics that I've learnt through grassroots campaigning about how we can better engage. Thank you. Thanks, Lee. <laughs> Dr Peter Cock is a pioneering warrior for social transformation. A sociologist, environmentalist and activist, Peter's vice president of the Sustainable Living Foundation, part of Instinction Rebellion. He has been at the front line for decades of this conversation and advocating now for an emergency cabinet to tackle this climate emergency. Dr. Peter Cock. Thank you, Tracy. Yeah, how, how do we empower our governance to make the needed decisions for a safe climate? That's the question I'm looking at. <coughs> the trouble is our democracy has become a corporate state that has been a partner in stripping individuals of their social habitat. Increasing numbers have withdrawn from politics. For example, only 25% of the population elected Trump, but 50% betrayed democracy by not voting. We're at risk of giving up on governance and leaving it to the rest of nature's response to our negligence and or to computer technology to make the decisions for us. Resistance to transformation is within us all. We probably won't make the necessary hard decisions until it's too late, unless we can demonstrate social as well as technological pathways 
They will both enhance our survival and thriving. There's too much invested in hope and in technology, as far as I'm concerned, as the easy solution to fixing this problem. It's much bigger than that. We need social innovation that focuses on our we, not on our I, on our we. And we need innovations built in by circumstances, technology, and face-to-face -face relationships for outcomes without, without excessive reliance on individuals' choices. Now, I echo the call for a, of the summit for, an emerg for emergency powers for the next 10 years, for a cross-party coalition of, of the willing for a war-level cabinet with power to make and implement needed but difficult and painful decisions. Decisions such as reintroduction of national service for domestic service to tackle extreme weather catastrophes. Uh, such as governments to facilitate limits to per capita consumption via encouraging a shared economy. What items will not be allowed to be produced or imported? Such as if it's not part of a circular production and consumption system, shouldn't be allowed. But I fear fascism like, everybody, like a lot of other people in this room. The difficulty is how do we, in some sense, have a more tougher, more empowered government at a national level, at the same time counterbalancing that with empowerment at the local level. Because at the local level is the breeding ground for the regeneration of democracy. That's where we really learn our democracy, is who we live with, who we interact with, Etc. A great hope for is technological innovations that facilitate rebuilding power for local communities, such as one expression is micro-renewable power grids that bring neighbours together through sharing their surplus energy. Localisation means building one's life and work within a particular place so that we have more complex, multifunctional, face-to-face relations. This reaches beyond knowing one's neighbours to rebuilding larger households. 30% of people now live alone. It's a significant environmental footprint. It's not, not surprising that loneliness is now listed as a substantial social problem. And we need to privilege exchange that is local. In short, a city as a cluster of villages, each say at least within a 15 minute travel time, electric car of course. Policies, but what kind of policies do we need that would help localization? Such as taxes could be reduced for non-kin shared households. If we're not producing biologically large families, then somehow we need to rebuild uh, larger households for the sake of the planet, but also the sake of children. If we live and work locally, there need to be positive tax benefits and price discounts. At present, there's no tax benefit if you live, lo uh, live and work locally. You know, it's a significant environmental benefit. And we need a governance, or not governance option, of forming community groups below local government to, for example, manage a local street or park or a childcare centre. Governance needs to be learned more, and we've been talking about multi-level governance, and yet the, lo the lowest level we have is local government, which has been made a lot bigger, much bigger, too big. For it is within city villages that deep education for democratic citizenship can occur. 
Localisation not only reduces our footprint, but it also is a defensive strategy. It's one that reduces costs and provides protective barriers to excessive dependence on centralised government corporations and their robots. 30 seconds. Running out of time, okay. So the, funda the, funda the fundamental tension between, on the one hand, arguing for emergency powers, and on the other hand, localisation is how to deepen democracy will be, how to increase the power at the federal level to eliminate destructive choices, and the need to encourage localisation of diverse ways of taking on responsibility to contribute to the regeneration of a safe climate for life. If we're successful after 10 years of emergency powers, then hopefully, if we have, for example, allowed direct, much more direct voting on things and, and local education about democracy, and then we'll be well equipped to pick it up after the, the, the um, emergency is over. Thank you. Thank you. Look forward to um, <laughs> distinguishing the difference between deep democracy that could also look like anarchy. Tim Hollow is the executive director of the Green Institute, a leading thinker, strategist in the ecological, political, philosophical and practice space. Tim is a pretty firm believer that demanding action from the existing framework of government and corporations is both destined to fail and an ab abdication of our power. For his strategic vision toward a deeper democracy, please welcome Tim Hollow. Thank you. Thanks. I also want to start by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people, the traditional custodians of this land, pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and recognise that this is stolen land. Uh, on which note, we, we middle class settler colonial Australians, almost all of us, like to think of our democratic systems as robust. And we've been told that, in fact, by Peter Garrett this weekend as well. Uh, but as Indigenous people, uh, my Holocaust survivor grandparents, my 13-year-old climate striker daughter will tell us our democratic systems are exclusive and they are very fragile. And this is suddenly becoming terrifyingly apparent to a lot of people. Uh, we are seeing a rise of authoritarianism around the world in a process which is actually inextricably interwoven with the ecological crisis, with the ballooning inequality and with rising hate around the world. We're seeing the suppression and criminalisation of protest and advocacy, the prosecution of whistleblowers and raiding of media organisations, a corporate capture of our political parties and of our regulatory processes and that's just the tip of the iceberg. In that context, what do we make of calls for governments which are already attacking our democracy to declare emergency? Are we comfortable with it leading, as some of the speakers in these last couple of days have actively endorsed, to suspending democracy? I suggest that the emergency that we face calls on us to take a very different course of action. And I make two central contentions here. Firstly, our current democratic systems are incapable of tackling the immense interconnected crises we face. These systems are structured around and built to enforce the four underlying inequities, capitalism, patriarchy, colonialism and extractivism that are the root cause of the crisis that we face. And as such, they cannot enable the solutions. 
the fact that no government or opposition party, even after the summer that we have just lived through, is proposing action anywhere near in line with the science, should bury the idea that politics as usual can solve this. But secondly, these systems are spectacularly ill-suited to enabling human survival in the face of the world that they have created. As climate disruption worsens, systems that are based on adversarialism, on individualism, on dominance, narrow efficiency, primacy of money and brute power will only increase the chaos. We need more networks of support, more social cohesion, more layers of redundancy, more generosity and cooperation in order to both turn around ecological collapse and generate the resilience that we need to survive, we need deeper democracy urgently. Now, I propose what I'm calling climate democracy, where communities come together to co-create collective projects, and there's a lot of synergies here with what other people have talked about. Projects which both dramatically reduce climate impacts, uh, sorry, which dramatically reduce our, our emissions at a local level and which increase and build social cohesion at the same time. And to link these discrete projects together into an interconnected project to cultivate new, resilient, regenerative and inclusive democratic norms and institutions. This is a project of community building at heart, actively involving people in creating our common future together. It recruits people to get involved long-term in fun, creative, mutually beneficial activities which make life better. They might be walking school buses or working bees to install installation, community gardens or collective food preparation, repair cafes or renewable energy co-ops, dinner discussion groups, nonviolent direct action groups, or formal citizens' assemblies. They might involve professional groups imposing green bans, or groups of small businesses in, uh, establishing a local currency. Climate democracy interlinks these projects with each other and with indigenous, refugee, and multicultural communities, sports associations, community arts projects, and much more. Because people enjoy being active participants, and because they know that they're making a real difference, they stay involved in projects like this. The diversity of approaches makes involvement more accessible for a much wider range of people. The participants develop expertise in democratic practice, in collective decision-making projects, uh, processes for the common good. 30 seconds. By building social cohesion, growing food, sharing stuff, they're creating care, connection, and resilience in the face of climate disasters. By undertaking real collective action and by linking these projects together locally, regionally, and across the continent, these are through assemblies, skill shares, and online discussion groups, participants develop real agency. Two more sentences. Thank you, Tim. Two more sentences. Can I please? Two more sentences? <laughs> Everybody else has gone slightly over time. Uh... Two more sentences, sorry. Just, this is the crux. We won't be just building mass movements to demand change from those in power. 
because that's a demand which is doomed to failure and which also abdicates our own power. We will be cultivating a different form of power and we'll be distributing it across the land and we'll be creating new regenerative democratic norms and institutions. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. It's impossible, isn't it? I mean, you wind people up, you know. Um, I'm going to come straight back to Giselle. Um, because in many ways, many of the things that um, Tim is talking about, how people remain engaged, are in fact things that we all do. We're already doing these things. We're here, we've been galvanised enough to be here, and yet I suspect the couple of you know, thousand people who've, who are here would have a very different understanding of what we're even talking about when we're talking about the notion of deepening democracy. So I'm interested, given the work that you've been involved with for so long, how does a deep democracy effectively achieve the kinds of outcomes that we're aspiring to without it also looking like anarchy simultaneously, where everyone is deciding that I, I know what's best, I'm going to do this, I'm exercising my democratic right. Because in many ways what we're talking about is, is either we, we opt for the current framework or we start creating a new one. And I'm over to you <laughs> in terms of what you think about you know, where we're currently at and what this moment is. Yep. So I see um, there are three elements to it which kind of pick up on the other speakers. One is that the work that Tim's talking about and, and also that Lee does too, with this, which is more direct action, nonviolent direct action, but these are the things that bring us together as people and form community and link, give, build relationships, build trust, give us a chance to express our creativity, our passions, etc., develop skills, develop confidence stand us in our integrity so we have then the, the confidence and the authority as authors of our own lives to speak to power, to challenge power, to demand better from power. So I think it's, a, it's an important part of the, the whole equation is what we do at a personal level. And Peter and I are both uh, also founders of communities, intentional communities, where this is actually an out there thing, where we deliberately actually create communities where people live together so that they can build those relationships and empower themselves to live better lives and meaningful lives. In the context that we're in right now, what we actually, to avoid anarchy, what we, we need the, the complete opposite of anarchy, basically. Um, well. No, because the opposite would be totalitarianism. What we need is, is the, the um, expression of solidarity of us as humane human beings with a shared, we're all in it together crisis and everybody pitching as best they can. To get the, we can't do it on our own as citizens. We need the government to pull the big levers and usher in now you know, an emergency response. So big things can happen quickly. We can't do that. We have to make them do that. And to do that, we need basically a super majority. We need basically all of the left and half of the right, let's say, put it like that, 
a 51% majority isn't strong enough. It could get knocked out at the next election. It's got to be like, you know, 75%. And to do that, we have to then be organising ourselves and our electorates, our, our communities from the grassroots and getting, the, getting persuasive arguments, building bridges across biases to get more and more people demanding this of our government, whichever government happens to be there. So we're after a supermajority and we need to pull together to do it, to get the leverage to succeed. Lee, I'm going to get you to follow up on, on that idea of um, citizen participation. Um, it's, it's the core ethos of the organisation you're currently working for as well, Friends of the Earth. It's a, a great um, demonstrator of, of the capacity of a grassroots campaign to galvanise. You were cut short in some of the tactics that you were, or, or um, suggested uh, ways of going about achieving those things. And it would be a good opportunity, I think, to perhaps um, explore some of those a little more. So just off the back of Giselle's thoughts, and Giselle, if you could pass that mic across. Um, yeah, talk a little more to where Giselle is going with that idea about a, a deep democracy, a, a citizen engagement that is you know, working toward a shared goal. Excellent. Well, um, you know, for those of you that have been involved in, in Friends of the Earth, you'd know that we are, a cons we use consensus decision making as a process internally of the organisation. And, you know, it, we're, we're in this um, process of actually teaching people how to do democracy again. We've had it beaten out of us by um, neoliberalism, and consumerism. Um, for most people, you exercise choice and decision making when you go to Woolies, or you know you're at the shop, and or you know some sort of consumer action. Um, but it is quite a radical transformation that you see occur um, when every you know every week community members are getting together and actively participating in decision making about a campaign, its objectives, the tactics, the look and feel of those. And outside of the organisation, um, sometimes we refer to it as the solidarity economy. So as a Friends of the Earth campaigner, you know, I'm, I'm on a modest income. I get paid four days a week, thanks to generous donations from community members. And, you know, I don't have money to fork out for billboards or, new, or newspaper ads or any big budget things. But what I can do to support communities is give them my time and my expertise. And um, you know, I can see some people in the climate strike movement um, down the back. And you know, the, the Act on Climate Collective and Friends of the Earth have done a lot of work behind the scenes to support them. Um, I can see people from the Basque Coast and Inverloch who have seen us, you know, you know, getting out of the city and actually offering practical support on the ground. Um, and yeah, I think all of us in the room. Um, one of the things that we can do is, you know, when we're involved in activism, you know, when we're involved in football clubs or in the workplace or whatever, you know, by really um, trying to, to use those consensus decision-making processes, it is actually a, a quiet and, and slow, gentle revolution. Peter? Can I say something about that? Of course you can. I mean, I didn't talk about, I talked about localisation, but what I didn't talk about was the whole thing about what do we do at the public level about the, remember, 50% of Americans didn't vote. So what are we going to do about educating our electorate 
about democracy. And my advocacy here would be we've got to start introducing direct democracy as we have in Switzerland, we have it in California, at a, at a graduated level. So, for example, we have begin to have a direct vote on how much we spend on defence. So we don't, presumably we would all vote against the submarines. So we'd have some, and gradually increase the weighting of that significant vote. So we need to use um, a way of process of engagement in democracy through having the right and demanding it. We have a right to have a direct vote on certain issues, particularly in terms of how much we spend on the, on the defence versus, say, the environment, and, and gradually increase that waving as we get more aware. So nothing, nothing like action to learn through. So that's part of the advocacy that I think is important about deepening democracy, about how we provide opportunities to engage at both all, national level as well at the local level as a counterbalance to the necessity to have an emergency cross-party cabinet. Can I... I must say the idea of going on to what has been also discussed at this, at, at this conference as going on to a, a war footing um, to respond to a climate emergency, I, on one level, think, good, taking it seriously. On the other level, I find, frankly, terrifying because, for me, if I'm imagining the Extinction Rebellion shutting down of uh, Flinders Swanson Street corner and we as a nation are on an emergency footing like we're at war, I I'm, I'm sort of struggling to see how we're not advocating for, for a police state. So I'd be really interested, Peter, to get your thoughts from an ecological perspective about why that is the response why that language and that uh, objective is, is one that you're an advocate for? Well, I, I think that the trouble with fascism is that it's, a, it's very easy to make tough decisions, but the consequences in a complex society that we have is that you haven't got everybody coming behind you. So if we're going to have effective response ecologically to the crisis we face, we all or well, most of us need to be engaged at all sorts of different levels. So I don't think fascism is particularly productive, although I understand the impulse. And that's why we've got to be very careful, as I've said to today, is that uh, any emergency declaration has a time limit on it. Um, and, and you don't necessarily have to stop elections just because you've got a, a coalition government. So there's whole different ways of, um, I think, having uh, emergency powers which are accountable uh, nevertheless, I think to make tough decisions which we need to make, which are going to affect us all, there's going to be a lot of opposition to it, is it, um, it's going to require emergency powers. So I, otherwise I think we're back in naive land. Now, so I've advocated for localisation as, as a safety net against excessive power at the top. Mm. So it's not about one or the other, it's about both. I guess it, it depends on whether or not you, you agree with the action. Like <laughs> If they're doing the thing you want them to do, then it's it's good. If if it's if it's something else entirely, um, Tim, I will get to you. Giselle is keen to respond to that, so I'm I'm I'm. Let's we'll we'll talk to that, and then I'll get to the alternate government model. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the war footing uh, language does have problems, and it does scare me as well, because uh, it can be who is interpreting that, you know, at a government level. Um, but, again, quoting um, Professor Kevin Anderson, who's the head of the Tyndall Institute for Climate Change and advisor to the UK government on climate change, he says he thinks of it more like the Marshall Plan, 
which is, was a re reconstruction plan. So it's actually reconstructing our economy. It's saying off with fossil fuels, on with renewables. That's what it is. It's, but it's saying we're doing it now. We're not asking corporates to do it. We're saying this is, this is such a crisis. You are being directed now, as, was, as happened in the Second World War, to this factory who made toys is now making something else. This, this company that was doing that is now doing something else. We need you to do this and this and this. And we are going to have to, um, you know, work so fast, we're probably going to have to have, we might even have to have three shifts a day to do it in the time frame. Three eight-hour shifts a day brings 30 years to 10 years. You know, and this can happen. So all these things can happen. So the Marshall Plan is one way, another way of looking at it. And another way of looking at it is what happened uh, with, you know, like the Apollo 13, or no, you know, the blow up of the spaceship and how did they get them back to Earth. That working together with all those science nerds in NASA um, to bring an, an unprecedented uh, situation, dire threat to a successful outcome was kind of like a war footing in a way. It's a crisis footing, like, yeah. It's just we're trying to find language that people can relate to where um, it get, does give government our support to do, to follow our direction, our demands for, for a transition, a transformation. So it's also in the detail that we provide the instructions. And the people in charge, mm. which I'll come, I will come to you, Lee. I'm gonna go to Tim and talk about um, that idea of, and interested in the 13-year-old daughter climate striker, because I'm fascinated by this, um, this generation who aren't voting, who have delivered the most compelling disruptor model in this space that we've seen in recent times, uh, and what, what that might look like in the next one or two electoral cycles where that generation are looking to take their part to deepen their involvement in the democratic process, and there's actually nothing there for them. What, what, what do you, I guess, see as this moment, perhaps, being able to throw up an alternate model? Is that, are we at that kind of cataclysmic moment, that that's actually what you advocate? We need completely other systems, that this one is well and truly broken and we know. Yeah, it comes to what you mean by participation in the democratic process, doesn't it? And one of the things I find really inspiring about the school strikers is, you know, Lee talked about the consensus model of, um, of Friends of the Earth. We have a similar model, well, the same model in, in the Greens. It's a consensus decision-making model. Um, the school strikers have adopted the same thing. The school strikers operate um, on a leaderless model completely. Um, they make their decisions by consensus um, and they select people to do particular jobs. My, my daughter, um, gosh, I wonder where she got that from, is a confident public speaker. So she gets a chunk of that kind of, but she doesn't make the decisions. She just is a, you know, speaks a lot. Um, so I think what's, what that actually points me to is that the kids know that that's the model of democracy that they want. Um, and I come to your, your initial um, question response, Tracy, where you said it sounds like anarchy. Um, I would say yes. Um, it sounds like anarchism, not anarchy, and there's a key difference there. Um, 
and you know, that, to me, is the opposite of totalitarianism. Anarchy is not. Anarchy leads to totalitarianism, where nobody is in control and nobody gives a shit and nobody is taking responsibility. That's anarchism. Anarchy is where we all know that we all have to pull together and we all have to take responsibility and we all do it. That's anarchism. And that's the model that I think is a really interesting one for us to start thinking about in terms of the alternatives. Um, and I think, I think it's, you know, it flips us from the idea of, of a war cabinet idea to the idea then of what does a Green New Deal actually lead us to, because that we can do at a local level. That's where government says, okay, we're going to enable this. We're going to throw shitloads of money and support at you. And you, as the community, you're going to work out what to do at your level. Uh, should have put a caveat on that. Tim Hollow was the Greens candidate for <laughs> Canberra in the last election. Um, do you want to... I'm keen to go to questions because I do want to make sure that this is a citizen-led discussion. So if there is a response to that particular point, I'm happy to take it okay. and then we can move. So, Pete, yep. 16-year-old Greta. I thought I was a pretty good environmental citizen until I heard her speak to the UN and I felt really guilty about a whole lot of things I do. And I think there's a lot of naivety amongst us all about our footprint. And I don't think we're all going to get off the addictions unless we have social support. So in a sense, grassroots is important also to help each individual redo their own thinking about their life and their consumption and their impact and to, and, and to not have to do it all by yourself as well. Uh, and you're not going to be perfect and you don't have to be, but we need to collectively work together to actually look at our lifestyles and how we can restructure them in a way that gives us more meaning but reduces our demands upon the planet. Lee? Pete, can you give... Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, um, I think the, the, war, the war footing does worry me a little bit. And, you know, I think that's what's really positive and encouraging about the emergence of the Green New Deal concept. You know, like, the Depression was the great challenge that preceded World War II and, you know, it, it reshaped the fabric of the United States and the innovations, you know, you know, Medicare and various other things carried, you know, carried on and unemployment prote protections and so on. Um, and what is really potent about the idea is that we're not only tackling one issue, which is the climate crisis, but it, it gives us a framework for reaching out to communities and engaging with them, um, uh, like, on what the barriers are for them to participate in the climate movement. Um, you know, if you're worrying about making ends meet, you know, your focus is going to be on survival, not necessarily the long-term survival of all of us through the climate crisis. Mm. Giselle? Mm. Um, I, I think that the... Uh, we're talking about Citizens Act. Um, are we talking about all the citizens or we're talking about the section of the citizenship that have already a level of awareness that is making them already start to start to act and how do we bring others on board you know so I, I do feel that um, it's not going to be something that can be dictated and we can just make everybody do everything we can't no one can make me do everything but um, it comes down I think to uh, us all as best we can walking our talk with this and we demonstrate our level of understanding of the urgency and the crisis through our actions and when our actions and our priorities are not saying climate emergency, that indicates a certain lack of understanding. So even when we think we fully understand, 
we might not be fully understanding actually the need for scale and pace and how are we going to do that. So we, someone's going to be making some big decisions about what happens with fossil fuel and what happens with uh, renewable energy, etc. You know, industrialised agriculture, the built environment, you know, consumerism, all these things. These are very big decisions. Now, at the moment, we don't have um, people in powerful positions who are demonstrating that they fully understand. So somehow or other, the fully, we have to bring that level of understanding up in our, own, in our own zones, in our own orbits, in our own lives, and spread that as far and fast as we can with all these practices. We do consensus decision-making in my community too. It's a winner. It makes strong decisions. The strongest decisions come from that. It takes longer, but it's stronger. Um, and then, then we have to be electing the people who are listening and who we trust to deliver what needs to be done. And we, by then we know what we mean by what needs to be done. So really it all comes back down to us becoming better educated and better at educating those around us. And I would say leave the most resistant people, usually family members, to last because time is precious right now. I do want to take some questions. We have got, um, so I might just get a couple of roving mics if we can. Um, there's a couple here to make sure. How we're going to roll this is do three questions uh, and let the panel um, respond, um, usually sort of thematically, uh, and then try and roll again. So uh, if we can identify some folk that want to take a question. I'd actually almost like to get Senator Janet Rice um, as well. She's putting her hand up there as well. So we want to make sure of that because I think the, the interesting thing about um, the leader of the Greens uh, putting up the Green New Deal and the session that we've just been in with the independent member for Ringa and her private members bill um, both rely on having the numbers. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, with one Green in the lower house, with all due respect, that, that's not going to get up. Um, and with a Green vote going down. So... Stabilised. Holding. So I guess... I guess that too, just off the back of what Giselle was talking about, if we are going to stay in, a, in, in this system with political representation, sorry, I shouldn't be. Um, you ask the question. Okay, and I, I won't go into everything I could say in response to that. Ask the question. Of, yes, that's good. Right. Sorry, I but took it up more time. But it does go to it in the, the challenge, and what I see this, you know, existential challenge of time and the urgency, and a lot of what we're talking about, you know, community building and bringing people together to create, you know, deeper democracy. So then we can get better representative democracy. So then we can get more Greens elected who or others who believe in the climate emergency. It all sounds great but it's not going to happen in the time that we've got available, given that we know that we are in deep shit unless we get our um, emissions to zero you know, within a decade or by you know, the last decade. So it's something that I grapple with all the time. I just want others' reflections on how we deal with that time, existential issue of, of time and urgency. Time urgency. I'm going to take more questions. Yeah, so I'm jotting down notes. We'll take some questions. Have we got... Uh, so have we got two mics working the floor? No. So perhaps if we grab another mic and, and work the floor with two going, I'll take three. Here you are. Here's my okay. Mine is more of a frustration with now. Um, my ex and I 
20 years ago were looking for an intentional community near the city and we couldn't find it, so we went to Gippsland. Um, <laughs> I'm no longer with my ex for unfaithfulness reasons and came back to the city. And my frustration as a renter who can afford one quarter of a house in Melbourne, um, ha um, co-housing sounds great, but you need to be financed to do it. So there's, I have a real frustration with the um, sustainability of rental properties, with the um, lack of connection with everything you said about solar. And my question is practically, given that we're running out of time, how do we make that change as soon as possible? This is probably social justice as well. Not just the middle or upper, but across the board. And that failure of the structure or the, 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 the failure of the systemic structure, which has to change, when you can buy something with the press of a button from overseas, it, yeah, that's my question. How do you deal with that? Housing justice. Okay. Um, in connection with um, the emergency that we have and a little bit anxious about a war cabinet, I wonder whether there was a transitional opportunity uh, support all the local initiatives that you've suggested and that cooperation, but I wonder whether we could initiate a forum and what you think about this at our national level. We had one between business and um, unions and developing the accord a long time ago, but um, a really good initiative to do one about climate action with making space for the coalition without shame to move towards this, that spot, but to take the initiative and share what is already been happening, what can happen in the future, and address the questions that have been raised very thoughtfully and powerfully at this big forum, to move in that direction to help shift what we have at present. So I'm just asking people what they think about that and that would support the bill and a whole lot of other things. There's a lot of good things happening and this could reduce the anxiety, etc., in the community as well and make a transitional pathway. Great. Thank you. I'll take one more and I'm, I'm pracing the question so don't freak out, panel. I've, I've got, got a question about accountability. Um, uh, to anyone in the panel, could someone please explain why we have parliamentary immunity? Um, there are plenty of professions that don't, um, and we make decisions. I've been a doctor for 43 years. I've made thousands of decisions, and I never had immunity. Why aren't politicians like many of us? Uh, which echoed the earlier, earlier um, panel as well. Okay, so uh, we've got time. We will take another three, so um, there will be more time. Uh, so just to, I guess, pracy uh, where we started with that, the, the sense um, from Senator Rice about uh, the, the, the time, you know, the 11, we're at the 11th hour to midnight, so we've got a time issue that is um, overarching uh, all, of, all of what we're talking about. Um, a great point there about what are those tra transitional opportunities um, and do we have time for them? Um, we talked about the economics uh, of climate justice and the exclusionary nature of, of that in terms of a democratic participation in climate justice if you're just struggling to survive. And we heard a lot about that yesterday in our First Nations panel as well. Um, and the accountability issue, which I guess is an overarching one. So, Tim, you're nodding earnestly there. Do you want to start? Or, Lee, are you ready to go? Tim, go. Sure. Um, my answer to the urgency question is that we don't have time not to do it, actually. 
um, because it strikes me that, that uh, you know, as I said at, at the beginning of my presentation, I don't think that there is any way we can pretend that our current system is going to do it. I think we can talk all we like about a war cabinet and, and a government declaring climate emergency and acting on it, and fuck that, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen in our current system. It won't. If anyone, does anyone in this room actually think it's going to happen? No. 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 So why are we even talking about it? Well, does anybody say yes? Sorry. Um, so, I, yeah, I think we don't have time not to start doing the, it from the grassroots up and do that. And I guess the other thing in terms of the inequity thing is if, we, if it did happen, it would be much more inequitable. And I think if we can use the, the great stuff that's being done by local councils and things like that, um, that can actually create the space and the economics to actually build from the grassroots up. But I'd love to chat to you more about your ideas and hear from you. Thank you, Tim. Peter? Well, I disagree. I think, hang on, two questions. How much time have we got? 10 years, we've been told, by the scientists. Two, that it has to be radical transformation. This ain't a walk in the party. I haven't got all day, all years. We've been trying to build grassroots democracy for a long, long time, and we need to, to continue working on that. But in the 10 years we've got left, we need an emergency declaration of something a coalition of interests, of, of the willing, not necessarily, leave out 30% of them, but at least we need a coalition across as much as we can. We've got 10 years and it has to be radical. That requires power and authority to give us the vision and the pathway at the top. At the same time, we need to build the grassroots. Lee? Yeah, I think there's, a, there's a, an assumption around um, consensus equals slow, um, and I, that's not my experience. Um, you know, working in collectives at Friends of the Earth, we build so much trust that you have a, an excellent ability to act with speed, and it's our ability to act with speed that sees us kind of jump ahead of more hierarchical, top-down environment groups that are our peers. And yeah, it, so I think there is this, um, you know, like, really in, um, engaging with that consensus and, and the trust building. It's, it's a secret weapon that's untapped. Um, secondly, what I was going to say, um, uh, bloody hell. Um, Giselle. Oh, accountability, accountability. actually. So yep. um, in Victoria, if there was a state of emergency declared, um, there's a 30-day limit and there's a sunset clause. So with an issue like the climate crisis that will continue on for hundreds of years, what does, a, what does a sunset clause look like for that qualitatively different problem? Giselle? Mm. Um, I was in Paris for the COP21 and the, the motto that was um, being used in the, in the activist area that I was part of, 600 activists under the one roof, um, was about uh, alone we go faster, together we go further. So this is, it's like a paradox, isn't it? We need to go faster and further. So we need to do our alone things and our together things. These are not, we need to do everything. And um, I feel that uh, there's a bit of a, um, a disconnect even in, in the community and in, amongst even activists that we look at, you know, we look at maybe uh, campaigns to save the orangutan and we think, well, someone's doing that. I don't have to do that, someone's doing it. It might be only a handful of people, we don't know. They might have a brilliant website and a little bit of funding and they might be flat out, burning out 
And the same thing is happening in the climate emergency and safe climate restoration area. It's, it looks like there's a lot going on, and there is, but it's way not enough. So we really need other people to, to start to put aside things, put aside some paid work. I have been on the bones of my ass for about 20 years. My kids tell me, you could go and get a job, Mum. Somebody would employ you. And I'm going, yeah, I know, but this has to be done, and we're doing it. So it's, it's rewarding in other ways, you know. I'm not complaining. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually a, a privilege. But I'm just saying that um, there's a stepping up that we all need to do more and more and more. Okay, thanks, Giselle. We have seven minutes left, which is time for three one-minute questions and four one-minute responses. And uh, I will kind of declare an emergency about getting them, getting them said. Okay, so got someone at the back? Yes, um, please. Yep. I just, I know there's a, like, there's a rally next week um, two o'clock at the State Library for um, climate change. And the, I just wondered what other concrete things we can do, people can do, you know, over the next few months to start them off to be involved. Concrete things? Okay, that's something. Yes? Um, I have a proposal and a reflection on this summit. Thank you very much for the organisation of it, though I do feel that it has not been participatory enough, um, that the audience has not had enough time to speak to each other and to speak to you. So a proposal for taking it forward, um, drawing on similar proposals in other countries such as People's Food Policy Processes in Canada and Great Britain. Why can we not, as a movement, have a people's process in Australia to create our own people's climate emergency plan. Why wait for politicians to do it for us? Great point. If you could stand up at the back, please. If you could stand up with that microphone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, so Extinction Rebellion's third demand kind of mitigates this declaration of emergency by demanding citizens' assemblies. What do you guys think about a citizens' assembly implemented at the federal uh, political level, which will show this democratic process that will then perhaps feed down to the local level as democracy is coming from the way up as well. Okay, thank you. One minute each. So we're concrete things, uh, a people's uh, climate emergency plan, agree, uh, and National Assembly, same Hello, idea. Man. So, good way to finish, actually. So, um, let's roll from Tim, one minute each. Um, I'll bring them all together. I think, I think the point is it has to come from the grassroots up, not the top down. And I think, yeah, I would love to see us building citizens' assemblies in every suburb that then come together and send delegates to regional citizens' assemblies, which create the National Citizens' Assembly. I don't think a single National Citizens' Assembly is the answer, but I think a whole suite of them and a process to actually build it um, that's exciting, and I guess, yeah, my proposal is that we link that with the fun. Um, not everyone's going to want to come and talk, but everyone's going to want to do something, whether it's gardening or cooking or giving people lifts or, or whatever, and then get involved in the p politics, and I think bringing that together, that's exciting. Thank you, Tim. Peter? I agree with Tim this time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think in terms of the issue of consensus, it's all very well to have consensus as a small group, but to expect that we're going to get everybody on board, forget it. We're not going to get everybody on board. It's getting enough people on board to make the transformation we need to make. So on the basis of that 
we need to accept that not everybody's going to be with it. We've got 10 years to get the whole population on, get consensus. You're dreaming. You're naive. No. Lee. In terms of concrete steps, um, get involved in a grassroots campaign, whether it's in your local neighbourhood um, or at a state, state or national level. Um, with the People's Plan idea, game on, right with you. And Friends of the Earth are going to give it a crack at the state level this year. Um, we have a government that's about to design a, a climate change strategy. We want to present a people's climate change strategy as a point of contrast. And with citizens' assemblies, um, I think it's worth uh, looking at the, the origins of the word emerge, emergency, the Latin word emergere, which is rise up. So I'm with Tim, bottom-up approaches all the way. And Giselle, you've yep, been at the I, grassroots for a long time. I, um, I support all of this and I actually support all these suggestions too. I think with the concrete, uh, methods, concrete things to do, look into your own life, your own connections, your own uh, relationships and see what you can leverage and who you can bring in to help you do things that are relevant. Join any organisation that you trust whose work you believe in, give them money or give them time. Um, with the forums, I think, yes, let's just do them. They, and, you know, anybody can actually start to kick off that process. So we need plenty. That's just, you know, that's just the bread and butter of, of what we have to do. With the plan, this is exactly what we have to do. We have to come up with it ourselves. And I think that if we sat down and we went through the live stream and the podcasts, even of these last two days, and extract out bits of that that sound like they should go in the plan we would begin to see the plan emerge. So there is a plan skeleton and it needs to be fleshed out by everybody having their, their bit to go in. And yes, we can do that. Thank you, Giselle. Thank you all. Please thank uh, Tim Hollow, Peter Cock, Lee Bank, Giselle Wilkinson. Thank you all for being part of this. We've got 10 minutes to get to the next plenary session. Um, don't lose the energy that has brought you here and fight on, citizens. Fight on. This was a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. 